After 23 years of barren marriage and years of public prayer, the Queen of France finally gave birth to a child, Louis XIV. He wound up being nicknamed Louis the God-given because his birth was so widely regarded as a miracle. Some 50 years later, on June 17, 1689, our Lord came to France to ask for a return of the favor. He appeared to St. Margaret Mary and gave her a message for Louis XIV. Quote, Make known to the eldest son of my sacred heart, that's Louis XIV, that as his temporal birth was obtained by devotion to my holy infancy, so will he obtain his birth into grace and eternal glory by consecrating himself to my adorable heart. It wants to triumph over his and through him over the hearts of the great ones of the earth. It wants to reign in his palace, be painted on his standards and engraved on his arms so they may be victorious over all his enemies. It wants to bring low these proud and stubborn heads and make him triumphant over all the enemies of the Holy Church. Close quote, our Lord. While discussing this very incident in her book, Ten Dates Every Catholic Should Know, Dan Moksar points out that our Lord intended to begin the reign of his sacred heart in the palace of the King of France, and then from there to spread his reign out over the whole world. She comments, quote, Conversion and devotion seemed to flourish in the late 16th and early 17th centuries, but then came the Enlightenment, with its decay in morals at all levels of society and its sneering attacks on everything Catholic, from piety to politics. Nevertheless, our good God, who never abandons his flock, once again provided his people with a remedy. Let the king of France humble himself and make a solemn consecration of himself and his country to the sacred heart, and all would be well. Close quote. So our Lord asked the king of France to solemnly consecrate himself and his country to the sacred heart, and by so doing to open the heavenly floodgates of the graces needed to renew Christendom. So what happened? Our Lord's request was ignored. Quote, Lewis did not comply with God's request. One hundred years later, to the day, on June 17, 1789, the Declaration of National Assembly, the sovereignty of the people by French revolutionaries, signaled the imminent fall of the monarchy and the unleashing of a chastisement that has not yet run its course. The age of revolution had begun. Close quote. The age of revolution had begun, unleashing a chastisement that has not yet run its terrible, bloody course. Where have we seen all this before? God makes a simple request. The man at the head of the society refuses to render due obedience, and all hell breaks loose with disaster, death, destruction, disease. And then everybody suffers. Once again, it's a lesson of the Garden of Eden. It's another clear historical demonstration of that most foundational truth that rational creatures, the angels and the men, owe submission, obedience, and adoration and praise to God. And the higher their office, 
the more serious the punishments and consequences for disobedience. These are the duties of rational creatures. God has the right to have the supreme dominion over all creation be explicitly recognized by his rational creatures, the angels and the men. How do we do that? Just how do we express our recognition of God's supreme dominion over all creation? By submission to his rule, by obedience to his laws, by adoration and praise of an infinite goodness, and rendering unto him due worship. That's how we express our recognition of God's supreme dominion over all creation. And to accomplish these ends, God has established two institutions, the church and the state. Let's take a quick look at each. We'll start with the role of the church. The mission of the church is to bring the saving truths of the gospel to mankind, to let all men know what our good God suffered in order to redeem us from our sins, to let all men know exactly what it is that God expects of us, to let all men know exactly what type of worship is pleasing to God, and to make it possible for men to render that pleasing worship to God. By doing these things, the church then guides men to eternal life. In other words, God established the Catholic Church to defend his rights, his rights to have us know him, love him, and serve him in this life so that we can be happy with him forever in the next. That's why God established the Catholic Church. Now, in that regard, let's take a moment to consider one of the duties that God has appointed to man. One of the specific duties that we have is to join in with the holy angels in adoration and praise of God on behalf of all creation, to beg from him the graces we need for mankind to fulfill their duties and to render him due worship. This is so important that God has set aside certain men specifically for this task. That's the priests and the religious. Now, everyone here is sufficiently familiar enough with the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass that we're just going to pass over that today and take a closer look at something that many Catholics don't have a good understanding of. That's called the Divine Office. St. Alphonsus comments on the Divine Office, quote, All men should be continually employed on earth in thanking the Lord for his benefits and in asking the graces necessary for salvation. But because laymen live in the midst of distractions arising from worldly concerns, the Holy Church wishes that in her name and in the name of all Christians, clerics, that's bishops, priests, deacons, and so forth, clerics and religious should praise God and pray for the whole world by reciting the divine office, which is nothing more than a memorial or a petition composed by God himself that he more, the more readily hear our prayers and relieve our wants. Close quote. The divine office consists of the psalms and readings that priests and religious recite or sing the Gregorian chant, for example. It's done every day for the adoration and praise of God on behalf of all creation and to beg from him all the graces we need to fulfill our duties. It may surprise you to learn that's our primary duty. As a priest, I'm not bound under the pain of sin to say Mass every day. I do say Mass every day, but I don't have to. The Church does not require that of me. I'm not bound to do that, but I am bound to say the Divine Office every day 
and every last bit of it. That gives us some notion of how seriously the church takes divine office. Why is it so serious? Because it's the official prayer of the church. And that means when a priest or religious says the office, God has bound himself to listen to it. He hears our petitions. Now that's real important. God has bound himself to hear his petitions. And since it's an official act, it doesn't matter on the holiness of the ambassador. Okay? So when somebody asks me to pray for intention, I stick it in the divine office. Now that's great. St. Alphonsus points out, quote, A hundred private prayers can never have the efficacy of a single petition presented in the divine office since this is offered in the name of the whole church and in God's own words. Close quote. It's guaranteed. It isn't guaranteed it'll happen. It's guaranteed to listen to it. He has two answers, yes or no. Sometimes the yes is later. But uh, it's guaranteed to listen to it, and it doesn't depend on my personal holiness, okay? Doing the divine office, we explicitly praise God for all the creatures that don't have lips to praise Him. For example, this morning in Lodz, which is one of the divine office hours, we have a canticle of three boys in the, from the third chapter of the book of Daniel. It has a whole series of lines with the same pattern. Just a few, for example. It'll say, Bless the Lord, O you sun and moon. Bless the Lord, all you stars of heaven. Bless the Lord, every shower and dew. Bless the Lord, days and nights, lightnings and clouds, mountains and hills, whales, all that move in the waters, and so on, so on, and so on. We go through a whole list of everything there is that blesses God by being alive, but then we explicitly praise God on behalf of snow and rain and ice and all that. We do that. That's our job. Every single creature, we do that. We're not counting the devil, so we don't... You know, but every, every, every single creature except the ones that have warped themselves, okay? That's just a selection, okay? During the course of a typical week in the old office, we go through all 150 psalms. You go through it plus a lot of scripture and a little sermon from the fathers on the saints of the day. It's all broken up, so we have eight different times during the day that we say the office, although usually two of them are stuck together, so it turns into seven, uh, usually. And when you include mass, you can see what our official prayer life is like, okay? It's great. As the poet says, Oh, that thou should give a tongue to dust to cry to thee. Even if a priest didn't think it was great, we're tough because we're bound under the pain of mortal sin to say the whole office every day. That's how serious it is. It's a mortal sin if I blow off any of my office. A priest who says the office well is a holy priest. A priest that says the office badly is a bad priest. It's that easy. It's guaranteed. I mean, God God put the church in the hands of men, so it has to be possible for us to do our job, so he gives us the tools we need. Okay, Father, we've taken a quick look at the church. How does the state fit into this picture? The mission of the state is to procure the material and temporal well-being of its citizens in such a way as to both positively help the citizens attain eternal life and also to remove any hindrances or dangers which threaten their salvation. Once we see this, we can understand why the state is supposed to be a handmaid to the church in leading men to heaven, and it makes us easy to understand why both Blessed Pius IX and Pope Leo XIII explicitly condemned the Masonic error of the so-called separation of church and state. Wait a minute, Father, what do the Masons have to do with all this? In 1928, the late great theologian and expert on the social reign of Christ the King, Father Dennis Fahey, pointed out that the preparation and the triumph of the French Revolution were the work of Freemasonry. That's certainly no secret. 
Then he points out that since 1789, following Satan's plan, Freemasonry has focused on three main objectives. The first with regard to the state, the second with regard to families, the third regard to individuals. Now keep in mind that Father Fahey is writing in 1928 and ponder whether or not they've met these objectives. In the first place, with regards to the state, since 1789, Freemasonry has focused on the promotion of naturalism. Now naturalism, as the name itself suggests, is a false religious view which categorically denies all supernatural revelation, which means categorically up front denying all miracles. You have 70,000 people at Fatima. They all witness it. It's a historical event. It's not, deny it. You know, it's just insane. Deny all miracles. Deny all dogmas. Deny, of course, our Lord as a Savior of mankind. And deny the authority of His Catholic Church. Obviously, naturalism also denies the reality of supernatural life. The life of grace. Now remember the difference. By nature, we're born children of wrath. As the Holy Spirit tells us in Ephesians 2, 3. So by nature, thanks to Adam, we're in a heap of trouble. We need the supernatural life to get to heaven. Naturalism takes out the big societal eraser and takes it out of the picture. You can't have creation, have to have evolution. Okay? Alright. All this results in a religiously indifferent or even explicitly atheistic state. And in time, Indifferent or atheistic states always wind up persecuting the church to some degree. That's the first thing, naturalism in the states. Second, with regard to families. Since 1789, Freemasonry has focused on breaking up families because that is the fundamental unit of the state by promoting divorce wherever possible. Third, in place in, since 1789, Freemasonry has focused on corrupting individuals by godless education, an education in which God and our Lord Jesus Christ are eliminated. So the three main objectives of Freemasonry since the French Revolution are first, a religiously indifferent or atheistic state, which results in varying degrees of persecution of the church. Second, attack families by promoting divorce. Three, corrupt individuals by godless education. And we might add now, since 1928, the promotion of corruption through the uh, satanic influence of much of the mass media. But Father, if the church is opposed to this modern secular state, does that mean that Catholics want to impose their morality on everybody? First off, it's not our morality. It's God's morality. Second off, there's a satanic implication hidden in that sort of statement. There isn't more than one kind of morality, any more than there's one kind of man. There's only one morality, God's morality, and everything else is just a different kind of immorality. Everywhere these so-called moralities agree with us, they're right, and everywhere they disagree with us, they're wrong, period. Close the book. There's only one morality, God's morality, and we want to be perfectly clear about it. We want God's morality to be the standard for everyone Everywhere, with no exceptions. Everywhere, no exceptions. And we're not going to apologize. And why aren't we going to apologize? Because we're not sorry. And why aren't we sorry? We're not sorry because we're thankful to be Catholics and to have the true religion. 
without which it's impossible to please God. We want everyone else to have what we have. An opportunity to get to heaven. We can't take any credit for this. This isn't speaking out of arrogance. We can't take any credit for this at all. In fact, all the glory has to go to God. We actually have the only cure for hell. By the grace of God, we're on board the Ark of Salvation. We're members of the true church established by Jesus Christ himself whilst he was visibly present here on earth. We want everyone else to have what we have. So we're not sorry. Okay, Father, but what does this have to do with the feast of Christ the King? Good question. Remember that thanks to Adam, men had fallen from grace and had absolutely no way to redeem himself. Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ became man and took upon himself the payment of our debt by his death on the cross. In return for this infinitely pleasing sacrifice, he's given, among other things, power. How much power? He himself told us in the Great Commission at the end of St. Matthew's Gospel when Christ our Lord declared, All power is given to me in heaven on earth. How much power? All power. How did he get all power? Power is a creature. This creature was given to our Lord in his sacred humanity by the Blessed Trinity. Now the implications of him having all power are obvious. Since all power has been given to our Lord, that means there's no power on earth other than that of Christ our Lord. It means that all power passes through Christ and comes from Christ. That's what it means. Think about that for a minute. All authority in every society, every society, whether it be a family, a city, a state, or nation, all authority comes from Christ and depends upon Him. This has immediate consequences. Since all authority in every society comes from Christ, then every society on earth should explicitly acknowledge its dependence on Christ as the King. He's the true King of all societies, and their authority belongs to Him. He's the King of all societies. Pope Leo XIII, quote, His empire includes not only Catholic nations, not only baptized persons who, though of right belonging to the Church, have been led astray by error or have been cut off from her by schism, but also all those who are outside the Christian faith, so that truly the whole of mankind is subject to the power of Jesus Christ. Close quote, the Vicar of Christ. Since he's the King of all nations, and since he's also God, all nations own public worship, and their authority belongs to him. What about families? There's society, Father. Are you saying Christ is the King of families? Absolutely. That's the point of home enthronement. Even if Louis XIV wouldn't do this, when we enthrone our home to the sacred immaculate hearts, we are publicly recognizing that even if Satan and his tools are reigning in the society out around us, that right here in this particular home, Christ is the king and Our Lady is the queen. And even if no one else recognizes this, we acknowledge their authority in this home and that his authority covers the whole earth. Are you saying, Father, that the authority of the Chinese communist rulers or the authority of the current governor of Kansas or the authority of the junior senator from New York or the authority of my boss all come from Christ? That is exactly what we're saying. All authority, every last speck of it. And since Christ is a king and since all authority depends on him, everyone who has ever been placed in a position of authority has to answer to him. 
as to just how they executed their office, as to whether they exercised that authority in a just manner. Now we get some light as to why saints are always so careful to obey all legitimate orders and why they're always, always trying to avoid positions of authority unless it's obviously God's will for them. Now we can see why St. Augustine cried the entire day of his priestly ordination. And we can see another reason why the feminists, who are really lusting after power, are completely nuts. They don't want it. I mean, they, they do, but they shouldn't. Okay? So Christ has all power. All authority comes from him, and therefore he's a king in public and private life. But does it really matter if modern states ignore this or not? It sure does. Pius XI explains, With God and Jesus Christ excluded from political life, with authority derived not from God but from man, the very basis of that authority has been taken away, because the chief reason of the distinction between ruler and subject has been eliminated. The result is that human society is tottering to its fall because it no longer has a secure and solid foundation. Close quote, the vicar of Christ. So what's the Pope really saying there? Basically what he's saying is this. We've thrown out God's law. I mean, we won't even allow wooden, or I mean, stone carvings of the Ten Commandments to be in public. Get them out of there. We've thrown out God's law, and instead of divine law, and divine authority being the guide and mainstay of our society, we've substituted man's authority and so-called human rights. Now that man has issued his perfectly insane little declaration of independence from God and is strutting around proudly as if there is no God, he no longer has a coherent source for his laws or for his own authority. Liberties will dissolve into license. License will dissolve into anarchy and tyranny. And the result is human society will collapse. Wait a minute, Father. Did you say something was wrong with human rights? Of course not, as long as human rights are clearly understood as being gifts given to us by God. What is wrong is when we cut free from God and start dreaming up all kinds of so-called human rights, which are not really human rights at all, but they're human wrongs, and very serious wrongs. For example, the so-called right to abortion, the so-called right to flee speech, which is interpreted as to understand the right to blaspheme, promote heresy, spread pornography to the four winds, or the so-called uh, right to clone babies and buy eggs from women that they're trying to ramrod through with Amendment 2 over there in Missouri. Each one of these things is intrinsically evil, which, by the way, means all you Missouri voters better vote no on Amendment 2. Anyway, there's nothing wrong at all with real human rights, which are gifts that have been given to us by God. Again, the problem is, as the Pope prophetically pointed out, that human society will totter to its fall if we exclude God and Jesus Christ. Is human society tottering to its fall? Are liberties dissolving into license? Is license dissolving into anarchy and tyranny? We'll look around. Let's review. We've seen that God has the right to have his supreme dominion over all creation, be explicitly recognized by mankind, by such acts as submission to his rule, obedience to his laws, adoration and praise of his infinite goodness, and rendering unto him due worship. We've seen that to that end, God established two institutions, the church and the state. We've seen the mission of the church is to bring God's saving truths to mankind. We take a quick look at the divine office, 
we've seen that the state is a creature that has a specific and explicit obligation of recognizing and worshiping God and of cooperating with the church in promoting and protecting the material and temporal well-being of its subjects in such a way that actually assists them in attaining eternal life. We've taken a quick look at the three main objectives of the Freemasons since 1789. They're promoting naturalism, resulting in a religiously indifferent or atheistic state, that they've been promoting divorce, and they've been promoting corruption through godless education. We've seen there's only one morality. It's God's morality. It's taught by his church. We're mission from God to make sure his morality is a standard for every society, everywhere, with no exceptions and no apologies. We've seen that the Blessed Trinity gave Christ all power in heaven and on earth, And since all power comes from Christ and through Christ, he's the king of all nations and all peoples, and that anyone who abuses his power and authority and office will have to render an account to Christ our Lord. We've seen that things are falling apart because modern man has so rashly rejected the warm hand of God and begun dreaming up all kinds of rights, which wind up being nothing but institutionalized sin. Before we close... There's one more final point we should consider. Pope Pius XI makes clear in his encyclical on Christ the King that, quote, Christ's kingdom is opposed to none other than the kingdom of Satan and to the power of darkness, close quote. What does this mean? It may not be pleasant, but it's very clear. This means that when a state explicitly rejects the social reign of Christ the King, for example, by adopting the Freemasonic agenda we talked about a few minutes ago, when a state rejects the kingship of Christ, then by that very act, it accepts, as a default setting, the kingship of Satan. There's no middle ground whatsoever. It's grace or it's nature. It's the powers of heaven or the powers of hell. It's light or it's darkness. It's the kingship of Christ, or it's the kingship of Satan. See, the reality is, when a state rejects the supernatural Messiah and places itself under the kingship of Satan, it also begins preparing the social and political conditions for the coming of the natural Messiah, the Antichrist.